I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare, Series 2, Podcast O, Introduction to the History Plays. Assuming that he is the author of Edward III, a question I will discuss in the Series 1 podcast of Chapter 13 on Shakespeare's collaborations, Shakespeare wrote 11 plays based on English history. The first, Edward III, and the last, Henry VIII, constructed as pageants, bracket two tetralogies, from the Greek tetra, meaning four. These eight plays are historical dramas that record the history of the Wars of the Roses. King John, about a king who lived a century and a half before Edward III, is thus the one English history play unrelated to those wars. Though the date of King John is debated, I am persuaded that it was most probably written in 1590, around the time of the three Henry VI plays of the earlier Tetralogy. It is important to remember that the first Tetralogy written, composed about 1589 to 1593, treats of the later period of the Wars of the Roses, and the second Tetralogy, composed about 1595 to 1599, treats of the earlier period. One may read the plays in order of composition, with an eye to the growth of Shakespeare's mastery of the medium, or in order of the plot, with an eye to the unfolding of the long conflict in historical time. The sources of Shakespeare's history plays are the chronicle histories of England, in particular Edward Hall's Union of the Two Noble and Illustrate Families of Lancaster and York, 1548, and Raphael Hollinshed's Chronicles of England, 2nd edition, 1587, both of which included redacted versions of many earlier historians. By our standards, Shakespeare's use of his sources is striking, in some ways faithful, in others cavalier. In studying the history plays, one must distinguish between post-19th century standards of academic historical accuracy and the standards of historical writing of Shakespeare's time and earlier. No history written by human beings can ever be untainted by point of view, but modern history, unless tainted by ideology, generally aims at hard factual evidence regardless of theme. The earlier view was that history should be instructive, that the significance of facts is dependent on the general truths revealed by them. Hence, Shakespeare's history plays, like the chronicles on which they are based, subordinate factual detail to thematic purposes. Shakespeare's goals are a. to make English history come alive for his audience, and b. to reveal in that history the moral structure of historical reality. To serve these purposes, Shakespeare will often add or subtract the details and characters and adjust the timelines of his sources. As the poet Philip Thompson writes, government and its actions are moral and religious functions and comprehensive allegories in all of Shakespeare, and his political scenes always embody a moral and religious drama. In a few moments, in lieu of my usual key line section, I will quote further from Thompson on the histories. 
Together, the two tetralogies dramatize England's fall into a period of corruption and tribulation, followed by expiation and redemption. The deposing of Richard II is England's fall, resulting in an entire age of rebellions and civil wars that bedevil the nation. The corruption and tribulation are temporarily interrupted by the glorious rule of Shakespeare's short-lived hero king, Henry V, after which England descends deeper than ever into evil and chaos, which climax in the rise to power of the arch-villain Richard III, seen in part as a scourge of God. When he is finally overthrown and killed, England is reborn under Henry VII, the founder of the Tudor line, whose descendants ruled during Shakespeare's own time. As an example of Shakespeare's allegorizing of history, one can look at his treatment of deformity and of illegitimacy. Adjusting the Neoplatonic tradition, in which inward quality must show itself outwardly, as ideally it would, Shakespeare demonstrates that it is the free will, rather than external show, by which human beings are to be judged. This principle is embodied in the characters who are born illegitimate or physically deformed. Philip the Bastard, who is renamed Richard, in King John, is presented as virtuous despite his illegitimacy, just as later Edmund in King Lear can say, as he is dying, some good I mean to do despite of mine own nature. That's in King Lear, Act 5, Scene 3, lines 244 to 245. Every choice of Richard III causes his character to conform to his physical deformity, as does that of Caliban in The Tempest, a savage and deformed slave, the lowest of natures in human form, until the latter, his will corrected, can say, I'll be wise hereafter and seek for grace. That's in The Tempest, Act 5, Scene 1, lines 295 to 296. That is a conversion that Richard III never achieves. But the obstacle lies in his will, rather than in his native deformity. Shakespeare's first histories, the three parts of Henry VI, burst upon the English stage with a bang. Whereas previous plays about English history had been either didactic morality tales or pageants, Shakespeare brought to the moralizing of history a method and a language that were revolutionarily alive, real, and fresh. As Roby Macaulay writes, the novelist of history offers us a kind of mystery play in which the great mass of ideas and events are concentrated into a sharp and comprehensible drama. Shakespeare's historical cycle and Tolstoy's War and Peace are such mystery plays almost the grandest of their kind. Shakespeare's invention of historical drama was unlike anything previously seen, or indeed anything seen since. We may look upon the Henry VI plays as Shakespearean apprentice work, and so they are in light of the dramatist's steadily increasing mastery. But in the context of the time, they were seen as a thrilling, and triumphant new kind of drama. The first tetralogy ends with Richard III, 
Richard's bloody achievement of the throne and his following overthrow conclude the Wars of the Roses. A few years after writing that play, Shakespeare returned to the subject to tell how those wars began, the subject of Richard II. In the two Henry IV plays, Shakespeare examines the relation of right and merit in a king and depicts the coming of age of the best king he could imagine. The second tetralogy is completed with Henry V, in which Shakespeare offers us his image of the ideal king and that king's ideal government. As we know from the earlier tetralogy, that hiatus in the Wars of the Roses was short-lived. But Shakespeare does his best to make it nonetheless glorious. In lieu of my usual key line section, let me here quote a few more sentences from the poet Philip Thompson on the history plays. He writes, Richard II is the Adam who, through frivolity, greed, and despotism, literally unmade himself and his country, and from his time on, England is a fallen world, though briefly in the state of Henry V, she has health and glory. Finally, after the long tribulation of Henry VI's rule, the arrival of Antichrist, who meets his destruction at the hand of the Redeemer. The murder of Richard II removes the metaphysical problem, England's anointed king is not England's king. Does England exist? The fall of Richard II is original sin, a fall deserved but tragic on both the individual and the public plane. Before he is overthrown, nothing appears in Richard but tyranny and insolence. Richard III's fall is pure redemption. Before the Battle of Bosworth, there is only one just man in the court of England. Laurence Olivier's movie of Richard III powerfully expressed this image of England as a world utterly dominated by villains. John of Gaunt's prophecy fulfilled to the letter. Thompson is referring to the prophecy of John of Gaunt in Richard II, Act Two, Scene One, lines 31 to 138. In the next five podcasts, I will be discussing five of the history plays in the order of their composition. Richard III, Richard II, Henry IV, Part One, Henry IV, Part Two, and Henry V. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. Shakespeare.